Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and for a special series dedicated to conspiracy theories, my guest today is Professor Gonzalo Soltero. Professor Soltero has published the book Conspiracy Narrative South of the Border, Bad Hombres Do the Twist, published by Routledge in 2021. Conspiracy theories have a long history and exist in all modern societies. However, their visibility and significance are increasing today. Conspiracy theories can no longer be simply dismissed as the product of a pathological mindset located on the political margins. In fact, we cannot just make laugh of conspiracy theories. Now, Mexico, which is the object of this study, is a fertile terrain for conspiracy theories due to its complex social environment and its proximity to the United States, which not only made it a strategic platform during the Cold War, but also today's land of bad hombres that, according to Donald Trump, should be fended off with a war. Conspiracy theories are always narrative in nature, telling us about the state of the world and the actors behind such conditions. This narrativity tends to be so entrailing that they have increasingly become the substance of entertainment and, unfortunately, also politics. So this book analyzes Mexican conspiracy narratives and explains how they produce meaning in a variety of social and political contexts. This book will present four conspiracy narratives from Mexico that push the boundaries of conspiracy research into a new direction. And amongst these conspiracy narratives, I should mention those that are connected to the to Lee Harvey Oswald's visit to Mexico City before the assassination of JFK, but also narratives that have been produced uh, related to street gangs across the borders, and now some of of our worst fears are projected onto them. But before we delve into all of that, Gonzalo, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. Happy to be here. So the first question I want to ask is uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and also about the origins of the book. Yes, sure. Uh, this has a lot to do with my interest in uh, literary texts, in literature in general. I knew from being very young that I wanted to be a writer and write narrative. And uh, I saw that there was this also uh, increasing role of conspiracy theories in a lot of plots in fiction. You could see it sometimes in, in series, in now you can see it everywhere in streaming platforms, in movies and so on. But I was always interested in what made a good story so good. And um, this uh, kept me going to writing some stories, but also trying to analyze them, to studying them. And uh, the difference is that instead of um, studying literary text, I wanted to see some stories that were completely fiction, fictional as uh, it came out later. But at the point, people believed them to be true. And I was very, very intrigued at, at how they actually uh, could 
achieve this this thing with uh, no matter who the public was, no, no matter where what was their social standing, their education, they could still convince them that this was happening and this was true. So uh, this is where when I started developing a research line in academia, I started looking at what is the social function of some narratives, and um, especially these ones, uh, conspiracy theories and also urban legends uh, struck me very, very um, strongly because I I was intrigued to knowing are they real or not, to what extent, when, and so on. So this is what uh, started me on this course. Conspiracy theories are narratives, and uh, I understand that some scholars may have different views, but I guess we can all agree that, you know, regardless of the length or the medium uh, which they're spread, but they definitely are narratives. And so I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about your approach to conspiracy theories, and also because you already mentioned urban legends and myths, if you can tell us a little bit more about the difference and also the similarities between myths, urban legends, and uh, conspiracy theories that are part of your work. Yes, of course. I think that uh, what you mentioned is important because for psychologists, for example, what will be more important is how people perceive these, uh, these different narratives. But the main thing for me is that the only way for um, these uh, conspiracy theories or urban legends to spread is through a story, through a narrative that is exchanged between people. It can be verbally or it can be through social media. Uh, so the, the main thing is, okay, so how do they work? They have this uh, very, very clear and very striking characteristics. They, they tend to be brief or they, they can be easily um, condensed, whether they're t- t- trying to tell the story that they bring. And at the same time, they can be very complex uh, when they are linked to, say, when they spread over the internet, how they lead and link some web pages and some ideas and some platforms and some people. So uh, the main idea is how these these stories um, come to life and how they evolve and how they spread. I do think that uh, the the, um, conspiracies theories in general have a lot to do with the specific uh, urban legends that I study, which is not all urban legends. Uh, an example I give to, to make this more or less clear, there is a well-known urban legend that is called the um, microwave poodle, which is about a lady who goes out for a walk with her dog. It rains, the dog gets wet, and she tries to dry it in the microwave with very a very sad ending for the poor dog. Um, this would obviously not be related to conspiracy theories, but the the, the urban legends that I study are um, crime urban legends that are supposed to be going at the moment that they are um, being these stories are being told. Um, so the the main point, what I think it's a very central motive, is what I call them. Both conspiracy theories and these criminal legends have some uh, sort of villains behind the scenes. In the case of urban legends, criminal urban legends, they are a bit more um, visible. The, the legends are about these criminal gangs doing some sort of things. And in the case of conspiracy theories, it's usually more behind the scenes. They tend to be more powerful. But it's always narrative about a uh, these uh, very evil people that are trying to manipulate society or do something evil to the people um, that are listening to the stories and at any moment this can happen happen to them. I want to keep the conversation a little longer on um, 
methodology because I found your book extremely fascinating in terms of like your methodological approach. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about uh, the analytical tools that you are uh, employed in your book. And, uh, you know, I want to tell the listeners that uh, there is an entire chapter dedicated to textual analysis, uh, which is great. And also, if you can tell us a little bit more about your methods and the sources that you have used for the book. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> I, I have to say that uh, on a lot of aspects, methodolo methodology is my bane. It's not something I'm very comfortable about. And this is uh, especially with narratives, which are very elusive. And even I have had problems because a lot of the methodological tools and approach that I use come from literary theory. And uh, here in Mexico, sometimes fields, academic fields, tend to be very conservative and protective. So at, at the beginning, I had a lot of resistance saying, but urban legends or conspiracy theories are not literary texts. You cannot do a literary analysis upon them. Um, so, I mean, this has been evolving, as, as uh, we mentioned briefly before recording, as a field. Now it's more, more accepted. Uh, but the main thing is, using, for example, the work of uh, Paul Ricoeur, who has made a very, very interesting, um, very complex work about hermeneutics, know how our stories experience, what do they tell us, um, and following this with also some, some cultural and psychological uh, analysis, know, for example, from authors like um, Clifford Gertz. Um, so it, it's, it's Clifford Gertz, at some point, his whole approach to anthropology was summarized with the idea. Uh, he didn't wrote this textually, but it is in, in his book, The Interpretation of Cultures, about how culture is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. So what intrigued me was, okay, these kind of stories, these narratives are taking a stronger place in our conversations, in our social sphere. So in how can we approach them? And as you mentioned, no, with this uh, one, one of the strongest analytical tools I get is the idea of paratext that I, I take from Gerard Genet, who takes all these uh, all usually little texts that come before or after a text. For example, in a book, it's very clear. We can speak of the title, uh, whatever ap uh, appears on the cover, the, the name of the author himself, the name of the publishing house, if there is a prologue, a dedication, an epigraph, all these, uh, Jeanette says, are things that try to convince us of reading the book in a certain way. And they will uh, very likely influence our opinion of what we are about to read and have read afterwards. And afterwards also, like uh, critical works, reviews and so on can also influence the text. It's very common, for example, for some books that appear to have some short um, writings of other authors promoting the book. So these are all paratexts. And um, some of the, some of the uh, texts I study, which are the urban legends, when, when I, I, I came into into contact with them was on a very kind of a first person basis because they were emails that I received and they were being sent by colleagues, by friends, by family as actual warnings. Uh, so I collected a lot of this. My inbox was very much like this, um, you know, almost like a Petri's dish where I collected some of these samples. And I, I started thinking that this idea of uh, Gerard Jeanette could be applied to them because it's usually the same thing. 
you know, it depends a lot on who sends the, the email, very similar to who is the author of a book. That will depend if you pick it up in the library or um, in if you start reading it and so on. And also the title, you know, what it's the subject in an email, it will uh, condition to, to a long uh, extent to see if you open it and if you continue reading. And usually what happens is that, again, this comes from, from what Victor Turner calls a star group, you know, the people that you care more about. So you will open the message. It says, urgent, important, read this. So this is the subject is like the title, title, and it gets you reading. And there are also a lot of paratexts that are small forward saying, I didn't believe this was true until I received it three times. So this also starts getting you into a certain emotional state that will make you more likely to be influenced by the text. And then comes the, the, the narrative of the, in this case, the crime legend, which is very short and very eloquent. You see, so there's this all, all this process there. So I, I, this was very important for the urban legends. And in the case of conspiracy theories, it's, it's interesting because they have been conspiracy theories that um, started after um, they are related to the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy because the, um, the, let's say, the official killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, came to Mexico shortly before. But it's interesting that th these conspiracy theories um, waited some years to start developing. I think that probably at this moment, we're currently at the point where these um, urban legends are at the strongest and when they are getting like the most um, serious coverage by some, you know, some, some global media outlets in newspapers or journalists that used to work in some of these. So here it was very different because I went to the files. I went to um, what is like the, the central, it's it's called the, the general archive of the nation no? in Mexico. It's uh, even, even it, it's very eloquent because it used to be um, prison. It was a, a very modern prison that um, um, dictator at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, Porfirio Diaz, started as a very important um, prison following the idea of the panopticon, which is also interesting. And uh, for a lot of time, the, 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 pris the, the prisoners that were there, they were, finally it was open, it was made into this uh, archive, and now a lot of the files about these prisoners are there, which is some of which I review. Uh, this is the case because I am looking at, at what in Mexico um, was the, the federal direction of security and it, its role is usually translated as a political or a secret police. This, this was a police that was in charge of trying to prevent any kind of social turmoil. They were uh, in charge of spying on politicians from uh, Mexico and from abroad. And after a long time, their files were made public. And this is as um, as they were spying on revolutionary organizations and so on. When they were made prisoners, they were taken to this uh, building, Le Cumberri, and now their files are there. And it was very interesting because the process uh, has been changing constantly. I was able to, to get access to some of these files for the first time. Um, and I, I say it's very interesting because over the years, the, the um, several commissions from the U.S. government, from um, the House of Representatives, for example, had tried to get access to these files and they were denied by a number of reasons, sometimes because of the Mexican government not agreeing to giving them away. And as it comes out in my book, also because the CIA in Mexico didn't want the Mexican government to give 
their own government, the U.S. government, disinformation. Uh, but as, as decades have passed on, um, there, there is now a transparency law that uh, sometimes it works very well. I was very lucky when I submitted my request for this information because a lot of information of these files were given to me as, as photocopies. And even if they were redacted, there were so many that between one redaction and the other, they were very eloquent. Just sometimes the, the information would peek out from behind these redactions. So there's also an, a historical approach here where I, I uh, had to go to these, these files and try to question them and confront them with some of the information and the versions that have been coming out from, from what is um, strongly or not related to the JFK murder from the Oswald visit here to Mexico. So let me ask now about uh, the context. So your book is about conspiracy theories in Mexico. And I'm interested to know if you see differences between Mexico and the neighboring country, obviously the U.S. Yes, I think, I mean, the, the title of my book is uh, Bad Hombres, and this comes from the former president of the U.S., Donald Trump, who referred on more than one occasion in these terms to Mexican. So we were the bad hombres, we were drug dealers, rapists. This is his textual declaration. And the main point, as I, as I mentioned, of conspiracy theories and of this kind of ongoing crime legends is that you need this kind of villain, some uh, bad people, usually men, which will be used to for, for a number of social uh, functions. In this case, uh, from the U.S., it's, it's, it has to do with uh, migration, it has to do with elections, it, tr it, it has to do with pushing some agendas and getting some kind of votes. Uh, but what is interesting is that this, this is um, fractalic in a lot of, of sense. I will, before uh, addressing again the US, what I found very interesting is that in some of the urban legends that I study, they had a first spread very strongly through the US, one of them 12 years before. It spread from, from coast to coast, and it was very widely believed. But then 12 years later, the same urban legend about this criminal gang uh, spread in Mexico. But what was interesting was the social interpretation. In the case of the U.S., it was a, either Mexican or Latin American migrants were in this kind of um, gang or African-Americans. And in the case of Mexico, it was clearly Central Americans people that could be from the Mara Salvatrucha, from El Salvador. And it was the same story, but the bad hombres were different. They were displaced like down of the border. And this also happens the other way around. Uh, sometimes in, in Mexico, there are some, some, some fears, social fears about the U.S. because we have a, a boundary with the, the country that has the strongest economy, army, and so on. So these bad hombres come in different ways. I think this is the, the strongest one. At the same time, there, there's even currently this huge uh, migration. You know, uh, millions of Mexicans live in the U.S. A good number of um, over a million people from the U.S. live in Mexico. This probably has helped to a certain extent. There, there are new bad hombres narratives evolving due to this migration, even if it's um, you know, it can be white collar, it can be more, more um, kind of field work and so on. Uh, but I think this will give in time place to new uh, urban legends and new bad hombres. But I think that the main difference, again, is that in, in Mexico, the um, urban legends are, are stronger because we live currently a um, problem of unsafety. You know, there's a lot of crime and so on. Uh, so these things 
really spread and they, they seem to be a warning and they seem to help. So I think that, that mainly Mexico think about its government, that it's corrupt and crumbling. And that's a very strong difference with conspiracy theories in the United States, because over there, it's more this idea of the deep state. Uh, whatever the attribution is there, is that there is like this very organized, very well-oiled, very efficient organization that is uh, pulling all the strings, is making all the scenarios, and it can be attributed to a number of uh, bad hombres in that case. No, it can be reptilians, it can be, you know, wokes and liberals, it can be some kind of anti-Semitic plot and so on. Uh, I mean, it would be more like some kind of... of um, Jewish organization behind this. So there's an anti-Semitic tone in these kind of things. I think that's a huge difference. The, 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 the U.S. is afraid of uh, this, this organization behind the scenes in conspiracy theories, and Mexico, we're more, af more afraid of chaos and corruption. Now, let's move to uh, 1991. The move by Oliver Stone, JFK. You already mentioned JFK. Uh, now, this movie not only resurrected conspiracy theories about uh, the assassination of the American president, but essentially made Americans and also non-Americans more skeptical in general. The one thing that many may not necessarily know or know very little is that actually Lee Harvey Oswald was in Mexico before killing JFK. And I was wondering if you can speak about Oswald's visit, actually the real one, and then later on we're going to talk about the conspiracies. Okay. Yes, it's. Uh, I think it's a. It, I, well, I find it a great topic. That's why I wrote this book, and I think this is. I mean, this is the longest chapter in the book. It, the, the thing about Oswald visit is that again, it can be a very simple affair. I will start with that. The, the, the version, the one that is more fact based, is that he went for five days to Mexico about seven weeks before the twenty second of November of nineteen sixty three when. Kennedy is killed, and um, he went, it seems in this version, to try to get two visas, one for the USSR, where he previously had lived, his wife Marina was from the uh, USSR, and he was not having a good time, he, he wanted to go back, and as he was going from Mexico, he was also trying to get a transit visa from Cuba to get to the USSR. I will make a small parenthesis here, because the whole importance of Oswald going to Mexico is because the, the role that Mexico had in the geopolitical order at that moment, which I think it was it was not very well known. It's it's made like a comparison to Vienna, the Vienna of uh, the third man, this film that shows how like every um, government had some spies there. And it was similar in Mexico. Mexico was the only country that had both a Russian and a Cuban embassy being so close to the United States. And it also had strong working related relations with the U.S., including the CIA. So Oswald came because, again, to get to Cuba, you mainly could do it only from Mexico. The only flights were in that direction. So that's why he comes here. He tries to get both visas. Both visas are declined. He doesn't get them. This takes some months, but he's not successful. And then... We know very well about this because we have the reports of all the intelligence operations, the spying operations from the CIA and the Mexican government on these communist embassies. So he was um, followed when he went, went in, when he went out. But after that, he's another three and a half days in Mexico, and we know 
very little about this. There are some reference. He said that he went to a bullfight. He went sightseeing. Nothing, nothing very conspirational. Now, this thing gets very complicated from here. Why? Because if we take it from Oswald and, and go, first of all, to the CIA, the CIA on the Russian embassy alone, on the door that Oswald crossed, had three different photographic operations trained. And that was just, you know, one, one of the doors. So um, it, it seems that at some point the CIA tried to get more information and made a um, phone call. This is likely to have come from um, counterintelligence. You know, there was somebody who was um, pretending to be Silvia Tirado or Silvia Duran, who was a Mexican working in the Cuban consulate and was the one who was um, speaking with Oswald about the, the visa. And uh, at some point, there was a call on the same week. There were two different calls of uh, a man who couldn't speak Russian and a woman that said that she was this uh, Silvia. And uh, then after the 22nd of November, when Kennedy's killed, um, there is like the... the Warren Commission, the government start asking for all the CIA material, but the CIA, the CIA was in a very difficult position because some of these operations the Mexican government knew about, they knew about one photographic operation, but a lot of the other operations, it was not um, something that the Mexican government had agreed. So this to a long extent was both illegal and it would um, jeopardize the cooperation they had with the, the Mexican government. So what seems to happen is that uh, after Kennedy's killed, they sent a picture of somebody who is not Kennedy, and to this day we don't know who he is, who he is in front of one of the embassies, and they they send a tape with these uh, voices pretending to be Oswald and Sylvia, and this is very strange because then we have we have this uh, physical Oswald that comes, but we have an impersonation of Oswald. So there, there is, we can speak of a second Oswald. And what is more, more strange is that in the first conversation uh, regarding this material that the then um, chief of the FBI, uh, Edgar J. Hoover had with the just sworn president, new president, Lyndon Johnson, it is um, Hoover who says, there seems to be more than one Oswald down there. And he was referring to this confusion. No? So this is why we can have two, three, or more Oswalds. And from here we go to the conspiracy theories. But still, I, I will keep more or less on this on this point. I think that it's very important what you mentioned about Oliver Stone's movie, because these conspiracy theories about Oswald's visit to Mexico, they were not like so strong in, say, 1962. I think for a number of reasons. What I say in my book is how after the Second World War, there was like this um, couple of decades of, of, of hope, of trust in the future, of trust in authorities. And uh, some analysts think that this, this um, ends with the assassination of Kennedy. When you have the president of the US being killed in a way that is not clearly explained or um, doesn't is not satisfactorily enough explained for a lot of people, trust on institutions starts going down. But after in 1962, some, some of the aspects of the trip start coming out, especially for the between governments, the CIA asks for a number of actions to be done, especially to be Silvia Tirado, to be picked up by the Mexican police and interrogated, and they then recant. Um, and also they, they ask the, this uh, 
political police in Mexico to look around and see, go after where Oswald had been. At the same time, they had to try to pretend they were not involved. So they could not get in contact with any Mexicans beyond the, the political police. And it's more during the late 70s and the late, late 60s and 70s that other stories start to, to come out. And these stories start to say, for example, as it will come out, um, some very intriguing things about Mexico. But uh, at the moment, I will stop here just saying that, okay, the, the visit was supposed to be short, simple, unfru- unsuccessful, but then other stories came out. Let me bring a couple of questions together. So, mm. first of all, I want to ask about uh, the kind of conspiracy theories and the narratives that emerged in the follow-up of uh, the JFK assassination. You already mentioned a few things here and there. Can you also tell us a little bit more about what you call in the book the twist party and also the main characters like uh, Elena Garro and Silvia Tirado? Yes. Yes, there are um, there are mainly two conspiracy theory- theories that I follow. This is because um, because we were saying after JFK and so on, Mexico has come to be one of the preferred settings for people that say that JFK was killed after a conspiracy where everything was cooked. And it's a very suitable setting. You know, if, if, if you take both fiction or nonfiction, Mexico will usually be portrayed in this very shady um, characterization where anything can go on and so on. So um, recently, even serious or... Books that could come from serious people say that if there was a conspiracy, it was cooked in Mexico. And this has to do with two strands mainly. I will briefly mention one, which is um, down to a journalist that at some point very randomly was having some drinks with a U.S. uh, consul in Tampico. And he said that he had met Kennedy. And this was like a snowball. It started rolling. And... He was questioned by CIA many times. He spoke to many journalists, and he was very, very shady about the whole thing. Sometimes he said he was he met Oswald, but he couldn't say anything because he still had communist friends that could come and kill him. Um, this uh, journalist has uh, sadly passed away, but it was very clear from some of the research I did that this was all complete lies. He was not in Mexico City when Oswald was in Mexico City. He was already a journalist in Tampico, which we can follow because of um, the work he made at at the time in newspapers over there. So this conspiracy theory should be dead. But if one thing we can know is that it's almost impossible to kill a conspiracy theory. And the other one is even more complex and more resilient. As you mentioned, um, there are two women that have a very, very strong position towards this um, story. One I mentioned, which is Silvia Tirado or Silvia Duran, uh, who was a, a woman who was, um, she was a sympathizer of the communist uh, revolution in Cuba. She had worked in an institute that fosters relations between both countries. And because uh, the, the, the Cuban woman who was in charge of being the secretary at the consulate was a um, killed in an accident, she was almost temping. She was three months doing that job as a secretary in the Cuban consulate. And because of doing that job and handling the papers of Oswald and giving him, I will say, her telephone number, her whole life after that has turned, as I mentioned, a groundhog of conspiracy theories. Every time she's hounded to tell more and 
afterwards, and very strongly related to this twist party, it came to be known that she was the mistress of Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico. And as she had these uh, communist con connections, she had something to do uh, with a conspiracy, a wider conspiracy. This had to be because she at the time was married to a man named Horacio Duran, who was a cousin of Elena Garro. Elena Garro is a brilliant writer. She is truly, truly great. Uh, her, her early work, especially a book, a novel, and a couple of book of short stories are great. But there are a, a, a lot of analyses for, of her work and, and, and life coming even from feminist uh, scholars. This is important because in the end, the, the easier way to say this is that she had a very complex personality. Part of this complexity had to do that she had very strong difficulties in sometimes distinguishing fact from fiction. She told this herself. Uh, she says that her, her, the stuff, the material of her short stories and novels came from what she understood to be real. And some of these, some people say that she is the true inventor of magic realism. So this gives you an idea that what she's, she's not like, um, she, she doesn't delve much in realism or naturalism. However, she hated Silvia Tirado, who was this kind of political cousin, and uh, some, some things started mixing. In the early 60s, 1964, there was a CIA asset called Junkov, who was in Mexico, especially to spy after intellectual organizations, writers associations, and so on. And at some point, Junkov was staying in Garro's house. And she reported that um, after the, the um, Warren Commission report came out, Garro said that she had gone to a twist party where Oswald was present. And there were uh, some characters, some some. Uh, intellectuals from Mexico City which were sympathetic to the Cuban Revolution and also um, some hipsters at the moment, some beatniks, I think it was the, the word she used at the moment. Again, this was like a characterization that there were bad hombres in that meeting. This, I mean, trying to, to see this from a factual point of view is complicated because at the moment, Chubby Checker's twist was a huge success in Mexico. There were twist parties. The um, this couple, Silvia and Horacio Duran, had made a twist party to one they had invited the Garros. But what never happened is that they invited Oswald to this. Uh, to this day, the people that the Elena Garros said that were in the party have said that this never happened. They laughed when this was brought to it. There was a very good uh, issue of a um, periodical, a news magazine called Proceso, in 1992 that called them and they said that it didn't happen. They even called Garro and Garro at that moment said that that didn't happen, that it was a lie attributed to her. And uh, even to the moment, this, these two versions, the idea that Oswald was never there, has always been defended by the, the, the Durans and the people they knew. They have come to speak uh, even to the HSCI, the House uh, Committee, select committee on assassinations no, that came to Mexico and they denied this again. And it has always been the Garro family who has kept telling this story. Garro said that she had gone with her daughter and with uh, her sister. And uh, now the the three of them, they have also passed. And now the, the her nephew, 
Francisco Garro, has even told that he was also in the party. This is very strange because they were never there. Uh, I mean, Francisco was never in that in that telling of the story that he was there. Even he spoke with um, uh, Charles Thomas, who was the, the officer from the U.S. Embassy who spread this rumor. And uh, I call it that it's a, the Garro family franchise because it's something, a story that they have been peddling for over 50 years now. Everybody else says it's not true. But this story, it's harder to disprove. It, it, it cannot be proved as in the case of um, Contreras, which is this journalist from Tampico, that you can see his work in the newspaper and say, okay, you were not in Mexico City. Again, because they were in the same place. There, there is a very strong um, trail of documents that help to this. At some point, Elena Garro and her daughter called somebody from the embassy who is the representative of the FBI in Mexico, and they have a meeting, and she gives as evidence of uh, the Twist Party a letter with uh, the name of the, the man who was there who sent it to the daughter because he wanted to date her. And the FBI man goes and speaks to this guy and um, who, who was an Italian living in Mexico, and he says, okay, I remember the party, they were there, but there was not Oswald, and this happened before Oswald was in Mexico. So I, the, 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 the twist party is something that on a real basis, Oswald was never there, but even Mexican serious journalists start still uh, keep be, be believing this. And to this day, it's like the, the, the strongest evidence that conspiracy theorists have that Oswald was planning something in Mexico. That is fascinating. Given the fact that he was not there, but nevertheless. <laughs> I want to move to the uh, urban crime legends that you analyze in your book. And I was wondering if you can give us a summary. You already mentioned them earlier. And also, you talked about earlier how, you know, you, you see conspiracy theories and urban legends merging together. So I, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how these stories transform from urban legends into conspiracy theories in Mexico. And here I'm really referring to the so-called uh, Lights Out and uh, Burundanga. Yes. Yes, I'll try to summarize them. Um, Lights Out is very short. I think it will be very familiar um, to whoever listens to this podcast because it has, I think, been everywhere. And the main idea is that if you are driving, what the warning said is if you're driving this weekend at night and you see a car without lights, do not flash your lights You know, as a warning saying, hey, you're going on the dark, because there is a gang initiation ritual. So the, the gang, the, the aspiring member, is in that car without lights, and they will turn around and kill you and everybody in your car. And this is the way they get accepted into the gang. That's the story on, on, on Lights Out. And Burundanga, it also has, has changed. In the US, it was called as the Burundanga business card. And the main idea is that there's this substance that it's very, very exotic, very dangerous which is called like this Burundanga. It's, it comes from Colombia, as many drugs have. So it's usually linked to this other story. And it's something that even if you just touch a paper that has been infused with this Burundanga, or even if they just uh, put it close to your nose, you will inhale it, and you will become some sort of zombie. You will not remember what you are doing when you are under the influence and you can go and empty your own ATM, give all the money, do whatever you're told, and 
you will not remember a thing the next day. So in in very shortly, these are the, the two one the, the the two legends, and the thing again lights out is very clear because what I had mentioned how in Mexico this was supposed to be. Uh, related to Mara Salvatrucha, which is a gang of Salvadoran immigrants in the U.S. that has connections to El Salvador. Uh, and this relates very strongly to urban legends, for example, regarding migration, which is uh, something that is usually latent between a lot of both conspiracy theories and uh, and urban legends, crime legends. Because uh, recently, for example, with some of the caravans of uh, Central American migrants, that head to the U.S. They want to get there, but they have to cross the whole Mexico. It was it was being thought that somebody was sending them, not that it was like a spontaneous human phenomenon, but that there were some political forces making them to cross. So you see, there, there's it's it's very much the same thing. There's a, a reaction that I I mean. The whole idea of bad hombres is that this is being told by the good people. We are the good people and we have to beware of all those that are bad and try to come here and hurt us. And that come come here is very important because it, it's uh, like against all this kind of uh, a movement of people across boundaries. And the idea behind, again, is, uh, for example, this has to do in the U.S. with this conspiracy theory that says that there's like a, a huge program trying to replace population. And white population is trying to be replaced with uh, people with other kind of ethnicities and colors of skin. So this is how they, they clearly uh, have some, some sort of association. And again, it, it's these uh, bad hombres that we see or we don't, they're trying to affect the way we live and uh, our, let's say, the whole way of life, families, homes, everything. Now, you have done a great work of textual analysis that I mentioned earlier on both stories, so Lights Out and Burundanga. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this analysis and what your work actually shows about both conspiracy theories. Yes. Um, yes, as I mentioned, the, the main thing is how this, um, what, what is... Um, growing, I think, that everywhere in the world is the uncertainty that we experience. This is seen on even on an ecological level, you know, is the world we're living and the way we're living is sustainable. What will happen? And what happens if we run out of water? What happens if we run out of energy and so on? Um, and this uncertainty makes us believe more strongly the people we know, this star group that I mentioned, our family, our close colleagues, our friends. So the main thing is that if information is coming from them, we will believe it much more strongly than if it comes from, say, an official source or a specialist. This will be the case in, in I think, a growing number of people. And the main thing of the paratextual work, it, it does show how it comes um how we are influenced by a number of cues. How, if it's somebody we know, how if it's there are some credentials that give it authority, even if it's unofficial. In in these urban legends, there's all a lot of uh, references to people that work in the system but are against the system. For example, a policeman that was in received this news about the criminal gangs, I said, okay, my uncle is a policeman and he told me that this will not be officially on any news item, but it's true, it's going on. 
so you know, even these these uh, sources are taking as more legitimate because they are within, but they are against. And I think all, all of these cues uh, will continue. There will be making these kind of narratives more pervasive and uh, more persuasive as well. I must confess that when I drive around Chicago at night, I often bump into cars with no lights. It's common, particularly with newer cars, that they have, uh, you know, you, you still have the, the regular lights, but not the, the, the full lights. But the thing is that I'm tempted to flash, but I'm not doing and after reading your book, I really realized that these things stuck with you. It's unbelievable the power of these stories and these narratives, you know, the effect they may have on people. And in fact, I want to ask you about uh, your uh, chapter six in the book, where you, you talk about uh, conspiracy theories as providing a sense of uh, understanding, you know, when the context is uh, too complex and hard to make, make sense of it. Conspiracy theories provide an answer and also provide an answer, uh, you know, for people that they have to make sense of a lack of agency. And uh, you try to explain how conspiracy theories are, are as a sort of a provisional remedy for social anxiety. And I was really fascinated by your discussion of one specific point, which you call the magical thought. And I was wondering if you can elaborate more on this idea. Yes, sure. The, the main the main thing is again that during the 20th century there was um, like this uh, optimism about a number of things where the world was heading there wouldn't be a next uh, world war um, there was like this um, human rights start to develop and so on um, and there was a, a strong trust in science for again some decades but then this started turning again and the main idea is that this idea that um, was very clear in those years, I think, from probably the 1940s to the end of the 1960s, when it starts changing, was that science would make our lives better. And we would stop believing, for example, in, in urban legends, conspiracy theories, and so on. This is also on the very first authors that start writing about this. In Alport and Postman, who had one of these rumor clinics during the war, uh, they said that there was an approach that they would soon be eradicated. And it has been completely the opposite. So I think that in these years, we have had to come back to, to the idea um, that we, we still ha have and hold a lot of the worldview that comes from the evolution of our species. And we, we are still very strongly um, drawn by some, some things that are completely magical. The example that I put, there was a study someplace that said that still a, a good number of scientists will knock on wood, for example. So this, there's like a paradox. If they're scientists, why do they knock on wood? And this is something that it's called cheap insurance. If um, there's something that seems to be really terrible, for example, if you're thinking of um, a family member who is out and you start worrying, you will knock on wood because it costs you nothing. It's a cheap way of insurance because say, this way we will avert evil. It will not happen to us. And I think that especially with the circulation of the urban legends, this happened. You know, it, it's something that arrives uh, to your inbox it is a legend, in, in, and in, even in that sense, folklorists would say that legends are the same from the beginning. No? When they started grouping, when they were only transmitted orally, 
to this day, where they call it them contemporary legends. They're urban because mostly they, they had to do with uh, cities and so on. But th there's like this, um, it's almost like casting a spell of protection. I get this legend, I read it, and I send it to everybody I care in order to protect them as well. You know, I, I'm, it's like this good good spell to protect them. And what you mentioned, agency is very, very important because, again, we have been told for a long, for for centuries now that our fate is our, in our hands. We, we are the ones who will build it. But this uncertainty is saying the opposite thing. So in a way, urban legends give us very detailed information. It's very simple, which is important. They condense all this uh, uncertainty, all these possible risks on these bad hombres. And they say, okay, they are operating in this way. They are flashing their lights, so they are going without lights. So if you stop from blinking your lights, you will be safe, which is what you said you, you had unconsciously adopted as a, as a safekeeping attitude. No? So I think that that happens a lot. This 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 will keep going on. And uh, it also works in, in, in the case of uh, strengthening, making stronger these alliances, you know, with people that you send these, these uh, legends. It's also a way of showing that you care about them. Um, and on the, on the side of conspiracy theories, I think this is also very clear on the simplistic point. I mean, there, there's a lot of, of things on conspiracy theories that try to make things that are very complex as binary as possible. Bad hombres is part of the thing. Good good people would be the other. And again, it's 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 almost like this um, binary thing, very many cases between us, the good people, and them, the bad ones. And it's 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 also a magical thing saying, okay, we're on the good side and the evil people is on the other side. No, it's it's almost like this white and black distinction between good and evil. It was just fascinating for me, probably because growing up in Italy, I, I share some of these kind of a cultural heritage, and uh, I never really thought about uh, the magical character of it and also how this could play into conspiracy theories. Now, let me move to your last chapter. The last chapter of your book is an attempt to shift the focus from the micro to the macro. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, what do you think the conspiracy theories you have discussed tell us about Mexico, its politics and society, and possibly also about uh, the future of, of Mexico? Yeah, I think that this is uh, sadly very fertile ground because now, as in many places as the US and, and so on, I think that they have become part of a political uh, weaponry, you know, it's it's something that will be instrumentally used to try to strive things, opinions, and so on, uh, one way or another. This is happening very presently. Our president Andres Manuel López Obrador has always had some of these features. Uh, this week, he he tweeted as being true a picture that came from the internet and it says it was some kind of forest elf, what we call alushes from the Mayan people in the southern part of the country. But he, he, he treated it as a fact. So again, we're going to the same thing where it's more, there are some other psychologists have seen that people that um, are more superstitious tend to believe more in conspiracy theories. And since many years ago, decades ago, when he was mayor of Mexico City, he had many of these things going on. He, he, he even, when he was in office, um, 
a comic was published that was saying AMLO, which is his acronym, against dark, dark forces. So if you see, even in those dark forces, the bad hombres are present. It was him against this conspiring thing. And in his discourse, is completely a binary thing. He's very much of the idea and has said it many ways, not that in a democracy there can be very diverse point of view, but that people have to be with him or against him. And uh, he, he, as a good populist, he speaks about the people. And the enemies, the bad hombres here, are the conservatives, which are always plotting. They are having these whole things trying to undermine his government and his actions and so on. So this, this is what we're living every day, every day. And again, part of his... Um, his own tools, which are very effective, is holding a two or three hour press conference in the mornings. And these terms are always there. Every single day they come and are part of the political discourse. So I think that um, it's very difficult, but trust is uh, very undermined. I don't I don't see trust going up. And with these, some of these narratives, especially those persuasive, those that um, are able to swear people will be more, more and more um, important. So I in this sense, I think this is very, it's very important to keep studying um, conspiracy theories because it will be what we eat and hear and listen pretty much every day. Can you draw some conclusion in relation to your work of analysis? And I was wondering if you can also add uh, comments, uh, given the fact that your book essentially was produced across uh, the, the, the pandemic. So, is there anything that you think has changed in the meantime? And if so, which directions these conspiracy theories have taken? Yes, I think that, I mean, as coming from what I, what I was saying before, I think that what uh, this um, optimist view that conspiracy theories would, you know, wane and die is completely out, 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 out of uh, the question. I think that also... Um, it's very, very common that some of these topics are analyzed, and I think it's very useful, with biological metaphors. It's something that also comes on the book. Um, urban legends, especially, were sometimes um, studied as memes, as Richard Dawkins first put it, how uh, these were like some kind of cultural genes that just spread and become viral, which is another metaphor. So I think that this is really what is going to be the pathological view that we would be vaccinated against this kind of misinformation is not going to happen. And it's more something that we will have to live with them pretty much as viruses. Again, this analogy brings us to the pandemic. And it was very interesting to see uh, from that prism what was going on and to understand my own book. Because I, I was finishing when the pandemic was starting and some of this, this, these things were completely there. Everybody was accusing each other of having uh, cooked the virus on purpose or having let it slip uh, accidentally from a lab. But, you know, this, this was from um, um, a Republican congressman, Tom Cotton, I think, who was first that it came from a Wuhan lab. But then Biden came in office, coming from the Democrat Party, and he instructed the intelligence agencies to check if this story was true. So again, we, we have like this rehashing of the same story from very different parties and it's not going to go. It's still going to, to be there. And also there was a lot of, um, of blaming, you know, uh, the, the U.S. blamed China, China blamed the U.S. that in the, the, the winter military Olympics, I think they had brought it there. Uh, Putin 
there was it's interesting because in Mexico there was a very viral video of uh, Vladimir Putin saying something obviously in Russian and the captions were in Spanish and he was saying that this was like some experiment to try again to to wipe some populations so again it, it was a plot by bad hombres from some other part of the country so it, it if anything it has very very interesting to try to uh, see some of the things that I was saying the book confirmed and also there there's an, an interesting thing of how this this uh, messages change from the platform they're being communicated. So a, lo a lot of this also circulated in WhatsApp. The only problem is that WhatsApp is not so eloquent for this kind of paratextual work. Uh, I mean, I think even email is still something that new generations use less, but I think usually academics, we complain we have too many emails to answer. I don't think they will go. Uh, so, but, but the, the technological transition will also be interesting. I think that there will be a change probably to more going back to more oral or even a visual audiovisual messages but through technology i think this is something that will will come and in this sense i think that it will be very important to also try to focus on not not necessarily trying to disprove the legends because as we have said sometimes this is impossible but try to understand what are the anxieties in the people that are circulating these stories and this might help us to understand better a number of things, and also to address better this misinformation. This was Gonzalo Soltero, author of Conspiracy Narratives South of the Border, Bad Hombres Do the Twist, published by Routledge in 2021. Gonzalo, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. It has been a pleasure being here. <laughs>